DJ PK and Andy Bailey joining us now. Covers the Jazz for Forbes.com, the NBA for Bleacher Report. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. All right, before we get to what happens in Orlando, Andy, I'm curious what level of confidence you have that Orlando is going to happen. I know there's still some people out there with doubts and questions, but I'm seeing these positive tests uh, for players who have been spread out all over the map, different parts of the U.S. Some of them have tested positive while they've been living overseas. And I'm thinking, how can it be dangerous, more dangerous in a bubble, even a less than perfect bubble? How can it be more dangerous than it is in some of these communities around the world? You buying that? I yeah, I think the answer to your question is um, <laughs> there's no way to know, and and I, I think you're on the right track with that question. Um, several weeks ago, the league and I, it came through Wojnarowski, I think, but the league uh, told players essentially we have to be prepared for what happens when, when guys test positive, which they will inevitably do, and now we've seen that bear out. Um, and we have to be willing to sort of push through that. And one thing I thought with the last few days, and we keep seeing names of guys testing positive, Jokic, DeAndre Jordan, Spencer Dinwiddie, I, I'm sure I'm you know missing a bunch. I think Buddy Heald was one. Um, and even as all those names get reported, you're not hearing anything from the league saying, um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna change the plan, back up, whatever. I think Adam Silver has said at least once or twice that if there's you know some kind of mass outbreak, they might have to stop. Um, but I I think the NBA is playing this as safe and smart as they can. Um, I hate to be the kind of person who would downplay what's going on. I actually just found out that my cousin and my aunt tested positive, which is pretty scary stuff. Um, but if if there is a group of people in the world who are um, physically equipped to deal with this virus, it's NBA players. And I know that they travel with coaches who are in the at-risk group um, or other members of the organization who may be in the at-risk group. Um, but I think all the precautions that the league has taken in, in setting up this restart, um, they've, to me they've gone above and beyond, and I, I think they're going to be as safe as they possibly can. Um, and I expect things to, to push through as planned. So we've seen the uh, NBA players over the years be involved in social causes, whether it be hoodies or T-shirts and whatnot, and they've sort of done it on their own. Now the league is going to be a little more to the forefront. You know, we've heard about painting Black Lives Matter on the basketball courts and all that. How much do you think when we get down there, Will this be a part of the everyday questioning as opposed to if you broke it down percentages versus the actual basketball? That's a good question. Um, and, and just having that on the floor will certainly have it at the forefront of the conversation daily. Um, I think we can probably look to the schedule release that was on ESPN as sort of um, – a template for how things may be down in Orlando. There was there was mostly basketball talk on that show, but they did reserve some time to talk about uh, the political and, and social issues that they wanted to talk about, and I anticipate it will be the same way on the restart. Um, and I think it, it may be more at the forefront at the start, um, just when they're, they're kind of establishing what's going to be going on. I, I think they'll probably talk about it a little bit more then. But I, I would anticipate that the majority of the time will be spent on basketball, just as it was on that ESPN schedule release show. 
Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I hesitate to break it down by percentage or whatever, but it, it will be a daily thing because it's on the floor. It's potentially going to be on a bunch of players' jerseys. Um, but I, I think by the end of the time there in Orlando, the focus will be squarely on basketball. Have the Lakers and Clippers separated from the West? Is there anything about this break that makes you think uh, they are more or less vulnerable to the next four or five teams in the West, depending on what you think of Dallas and their level of playoff experience, maybe you dismiss them, but certainly the other four, how good a shot do they have to wreck an, uh, a Clipper-Laker conference final? I feel about the same uh, about those two teams as I did around the time as, as, of the shutdown. Um, I think they're clearly the two favorites, but having said that, I would not be shocked if a number of teams in the West upset them. Um, I think you broke it down perfectly. Dallas is sort of on the fringe. I, I think with their lack of playoff experience, it's fair to question what they're going to look like um, in these this eight-game slate plus the playoffs. But they have an historically great offensive player and an historically great offense, and so I would not be surprised to see them get super hot in a series and upset somebody. Um, they can just they can put up points in bunches, and, and if you do that four out of seven games, you advance. Um, you know, the Rockets have a ton of star power at the top of their roster, obviously, with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And Harden is one of those guys who's been sort of on the offseason muscle watch during this uh, shutdown. He's lost a bunch of weight, and that, that could be an indication of increased focus from him. Um, I think that the Nuggets are going to be a problem. Jokic is another guy who's slimmed down. I'm, I'm actually really curious to see how he plays, because I think there were some ways that the weight helped him. So he's going to be a fascinating watch for me. Um the Jazz, I, I, I kind of pushed them maybe back to the Mavericks tier now because I think the loss of Bogdanovich is huge. Um, what he did to space the floor for Mitchell and Gobert, uh, who, who do a lot of their damage inside the three-point line, was huge. And, and not only that, um, it hurts their depth, of course, to not have him in the lineup. Now you've got to bump somebody up to get more minutes. Um, so I'm very concerned about what their rotation might look like without Bogdanovich. But this is my very long-winded way of saying that the Clippers and Lakers are, are the two favorites in the West, and I hesitate to pick which one I'd say is the favorite. Um, but there are a bunch of teams over there that, that would not surprise me to see an upset. As far as the Jazz perspective, I believe it's got to start with Conley. He's got to up his game, and I believe he's very capable. And if he ups his game, then that makes it easier for guys like Ingles, Clarkson, Yang, Moutier to up their games. But if Conley doesn't up their up his game, then it puts the pressure on those other guys. So react to what I just said there. That's an excellent point. I mean, if Conley from 2018-19 uh, coming out of this, shut down, that, that could right there neutralize the loss of Bogdanovich, at least in a lot of ways and at least offensively. I think you're naturally going to have problems with a Tommy Mitchell backcourt defensively just because of their size. And Mitchell is obviously a, a fantastic athlete. He's got good wingspan uh, for a player of his height, so he can cover twos, I think, fairly effectively. But they're going to come up against some big wings, um, and that can cause problems for them defensively. But I think you're right on the money. If, if Mike Conley, maybe he's more acclimated to the system now over the last few months. Maybe he, he's more figured out his role. It seemed like he was kind of on that path just before the, the league shut down anyway. Um, so I think he can make up a lot of the ground that that, that they lost uh, when Bogdanovich went down with the wrist surgery. But I, I still have some concerns about the defense. 
When I look at Conley's numbers for uh, October and November, which is about a 20-game sample, he's like 14 points a game, and he's shooting probably about 35% from three. Uh, both those numbers well off what he had been doing in Memphis that you know made him Mike Conley and got him that big deal. But then I look at the, the numbers that he put up in February and March, which is about a 13-game sample, and he's at 16.5 points a game, and he's shooting 45% from three. And I'm thinking, that guy, February, March Conley, if that's the guy who shows up in Orlando, well, getting more possessions, because Bogdanovich isn't there to take a bunch of shots, so those shots will get split up, and some will go to Conley, and some will obviously uh, go to Joe Ingles, and some are sure to go to Donovan Mitchell. But Conley at 20 points a game doesn't seem like a stretch at all, if they get February and March, Mike Conley. Yeah, that's a dynamic offensive player. Um, and, and I think part of the reason he struggled to figure out his new role in Utah is he was getting fewer shots than he got in Memphis, and it was less usage, less controlling of the ball. And so maybe Bogdanovich's absence in some way uh, you know, helps him recapture what he's doing in Memphis. And that, that helps them offensively, I, I think, a great deal. And now you've got three guys who can create for themselves and others, and Conley, Mitchell, and Ingles. Uh, I, I would assume that's probably the starting – all three of those guys will start with, with uh, Bogdanovich out. Um, so you've got playmaking coming from a bunch of different angles. You've got a couple guys who should you know, conceivably be able to hit Gobert on lobs and Conley and Ingles. Um, so I, I think offensively there's a chance for a lot of dynamic play you know, if Conley is that guy that you mentioned from from February, February and March, if he comes back and you know it takes him a while to get going, like it did at the start of the season, uh, then Utah could be in trouble pretty early. Another reason why I think that they can be a little bit better than people might be expecting, and I don't discount uh, Bogey's loss and how critical he was to the team because he was an excellent player and he's very fun to watch, is that they've known about this for a long time. It's not like it occurred during the season when games are coming at you fast and furious and there's not a lot of time to adjust you just got to go and you're basically you're making your adjustments on the fly here they will have have weeks literally that they've known about it and then they can have a couple of weeks before they actually have to play games in which they're practicing how much do you think that can mitigate this man's loss that's an excellent point, too. Um, you know, Quinn Snyder, I think, over the last few years, has demonstrated that he's one of the better coaches in the league at, at making adjustments and adapting to the personnel that he has. Um, you know, I remember when he was first hired, a lot of the talk was, you know, the Jazz got this offensive genius. He's written manifestos about the pick and roll. Um, it's going to be offense, offense, offense. And then yeah, I think he got a feel for the roster he had and the fact that his best player was this defensive juggernaut in Rudy Gobert, and it became a very defense-first team. Um, so I think given weeks and weeks to prepare for this, as you just mentioned, I, I think will help. Um, it's, it's really going to fall largely on the shoulders of guys who have to fill in um, Bogdanovich's minutes and, and shot allocation. And you've mentioned a lot of them already. A lot of that offensive responsibility is going to go to Conley. Some are going to go to Mitchell. Um, but guys further down the bench who are now going to be thrust into slightly bigger roles, like George Niang, um, you know, Royce O'Neal might need to take a few more shots. He's always been a very, very low usage player. Maybe they can convince him to take another shot here or there. Maybe he can t- attack off the dribble now and then. Um, you know, it's, it's going to take a team effort to replace 
that guy. I mean, it's it's not easy to replace 20 points per game and, and 40 whatever he was shooting from three, 41, 42 percent. Um, that's a big loss. But like you said, they've had time to adjust to it. They Conceivably, they've, they've got a guy in Conley who, if he can get back to his old self, can help too. Um, you know, I think there's a chance they make up for it. It's, it's just, it is a big loss. And so it's going to be something to pay attention to. DJ PK and Andy Bailey join us. He covers the Utah Jazz for Forbes.com and the NBA for Bleacher Report. Are you one of those people who's going to be watching Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert's body language and how they interact? Are you completely over that and don't care? I think I'll probably pay some attention to it in the first game or two. Um, you know, and if it doesn't look like there's any indication that there's a problem, then then that's that'd be it in in my mind. I, Utah has come on, I think, a couple times and said things are fine. Um, they'll be able to play together, and I think the players have both said that when it comes to winning, we're going to be on the same page. And so, if they look, you know, like their old normal selves in the first couple games, I think it's fine to put that to bed. Everybody wants to win a title, and that's the whole point. That's what you're striving for. A uh, long-term pitcher. What do you think the Jazz need? I, I think they need a superstar leap from Donovan Mitchell. Um, I still think, you know, I, th- this was thrown around a lot in his rookie year, and it's cooled off a little bit the last couple years, but there were Dwayne Wade comparisons. There were Damian Lillard comparisons. I think I might have even gone as far as to say he could be a Dwayne Wade-Damian Lillard hybrid, which just, you know, that's very, very lofty. But I still think that potential is there uh, for him. I, I think if he becomes slightly more efficient as a scorer, I think this season he's actually above average um, in terms of true shooting percentage for the first time in his career. And he's, he's slowly been trending that direction over the course of his career. So if he gets a little bit more efficient, I think if he improves his playmaking a little bit, I, I think he's a guy who has the ability to average six or seven assists a game. And I think he will command the type, the type of attention that, that makes other guys open. Um, so I think if he can reach his potential, which to me is still like a top five to ten player in the league, Utah is in the title picture. Um, you know, I already think Rudy Gobert is better than people realize. I think he's, in terms of impact, probably a top ten to fifteen player in the NBA. And so if Donovan Mitchell joins him in that tier, then then you've got two top fifteen guys, and that's kind of the foundation for championship teams here uh, for the last several years. You've got to have. Um, at least a couple of those guys. I mean, there are those rare examples, like the 2011 Mavericks who did it with just Dirk. Um, there's the 2004 Pistons who, who were, you know, very, very team first. But I think Utah has a chance um, with Mitchell and Gobert to have two top 15 guys, and that's, that's a title contender right there. So when you talk about getting more efficient, does Mitchell have to pretty much double his trips to the free throw line? Free throw line is huge. Um, you're, you're right on track there. I think he's got a I wouldn't say completely shy away from the mid-range shots because I think he's a lot better in that range than most people are in the NBA. Um, And if you can exploit that part of the floor where defenses maybe aren't paying as much attention as they used to just because, you know, fewer guys shoot, that's that's a good shot for Donovan Mitchell. But there are times, I think, when he pulls up too quickly and and he could get all the way to the rim and draw some contact. Um, The most efficient way to score in basketball is a trip to the free throw line. And so if he can increase those, that certainly increases his efficiency. Um, I think he has the potential to be a guy who shoots high 30s, you know, low 40s from three, too. I, I don't know if that's an every season type of a thing for him, but I do think he has that potential to be to be that sort of a consistent 
three-point shooter. Um, so if you up the three-point percentage a point or two, you get to the free throw line, like you said, I, I think a lot more times. Um, he's suddenly a much, much more efficient scorer. And I, I do think playmaking is huge for him, too. Um, assists, I, I think, get everybody else on the team going. Um, like I said earlier, he draws a lot of attention on defense, so there are guys who are open sometimes and he's going to the rim and you think, well, there's Gobert for a drop-off or there's Ingles for a kick-out. Um, and he doesn't always find it. And sometimes that's fine. I mean, sometimes he'll score, sometimes he'll get a trip to the line. But, but I think moving the ball just a little bit more would probably help him too. Do you think that the fact that there are no fans would actually favor the uh, statistically or the odds on favorite as far as the better teams? Because a lot of teams, you know, they draw the emotion from the fan base and maybe that pumps them up if they're an underdog. And obviously that'll be wiped out. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting uh, to pay attention to, and I think impossible to predict just because we've never seen it. Um, we've, we've literally never had NBA – I can't think of a time, but this has got to be the first time in NBA history that we've had regular season games without fans. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there are a lot of times that underdogs draw on the spirit of the fans, and that, that might push them to upsets here and there. And so I, I think you may be onto something that maybe – this is our best uh, way to determine which team has the most talent and, and which team is the most driven. Um, because I, I think there is something to being able to feed off the crowd, uh, and the emotional push that they can give you. So now it's, it's down to just talent and intrinsic motivation um, for a lot of these players. So it'll be really interesting to see how certain teams react to that, um, You know whether or not the lack of home court advantage throws things off. I don't, I don't, thinking about it now, I'm not sure how you measure it. Um, but it will be very, very interesting to see NBA games played without fans. That's, you know, among the many, many things that are going to be fascinating to watch over the next few months. That's a big one. You know, people talk about the 76ers and they talk about, you know, Simmons can't shoot and does Simmons and Embiid get along? And to me, vastly underreported is the dramatic difference between them home and on the road. 29-2 and two at home. It's the best home record in the NBA and they are a horrific 10 and 24 away from home. And I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how this is going to impact them being on a neutral court, not having to travel, but not having their fans, not having the other team's fans. Yeah. It just seems they're such a weird team. And now they're put in this weird environment that I don't know which, I don't know what it's going to do to them. That is an excellent point. Um, you know, we just talked about teams feeding off of crowds. I think Joel Embiid is a guy who clearly feeds off that. 76ers home crowd, and now I'm, I'm real tempted after we finish this phone call to go look up his home and road splits, because I imagine there's a pretty big difference there. Um, they have a ton of talent on that team. The, the fit was not great this season, and I think the numbers, I don't think, I know the numbers are quite a bit better when, when Embiid and Simmons play without Orford. In my mind, what I've kind of thought about them is they, they essentially started three centers for a lot of the season. In a lot of ways, to me, Ben Simmons is a point center more than a point guard. Um, so they had a lot of crowding and uh, issues with that lineup that caused them problems, and they were starting to figure that out right before the season shut down. So in terms of talent, I think Philadelphia is still a great team. I wouldn't be surprised to see them come out of the East. But like you just said, without that home crowd to feed off of, um, and if, if that's something that really gets Joel Embiid motivated, maybe that's another team that could be right for, for a you know first-round exit. Um they, they could potentially, I think right now they're six. Mm-hmm. So they may have to play the Boston Celtics in the first round. Um, and Boston has kind of had their number over the last 
couple of years. They beat them in a playoff series a couple of years ago. Joe Allen beat that something like they kick our butts all the time. Um, so that that would not be a good first round matchup for them to pull, especially if they don't have the home court to help them out with a few of those games. Well, as always, Andy, we appreciate some of your time. Thanks for checking in with us. You can read more of Andy at Forbes.com. He's also on Bleacher Report. Andy Bailey. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks, guys.